welcome once again to Patrick Miner's podcast. Not long ago, I found myself in a county park, a large county park, and I got lost. And in this era of the COVID, I couldn't find anybody to point the right direction. Today's guest can point in the right direction. Mike Oswald, please introduce yourself. Hey, Patrick. Yeah, my name is Mike Oswald. And I don't, you might be a little too kind on uh, my navigational skills, but I, I, can put a, I can put a book together and take some fairly detailed notes. And uh, in, in that regard, I've put together a book on the U.S. national parks. What's the name of it, Dan? When was it published? The name of the book is Your Guide to the National Parks, and it was originally published in summer of 2012. That was the first edition. Second edition was released in fall of 2017, and I'm presently working on the third edition, hoping to have that out next year, post, post-COVID. Very good. What's the scope of the book? It covers all the U.S. national parks, so and that is a, a point of confusion for a lot of park goers. So you were in a county park, and that wouldn't be, that'd be a, a state or a, a county property, and then there's state properties, and then there's federal properties. And among all the federal properties, the National Park Service oversees, I think it's 419 right now, and 62 of those 419 are national parks. And we've had three new ones in the last couple of years, and my latest edition that covers 59 of them. So the next one will have 62 in it. That's quite an undertaking. How did that ever get started? Uh, yeah, that's, that'd be, that could take like a whole hour by itself. Uh, I'm probably much more than that. Long story short is, I guess I had a sort of certain amount of dissatisfaction with the corporate job, working as an electrical engineer and fled the, fled the scene to a more exciting lifestyle and went to South America and I ended up getting mugged and cut, which required surgery on a pinky finger. And while uh, after surgery, my mom's like, get a job, get a job. And I'm just like, I'm not broke yet. And I headed out east to the national, to Acadia National Park. And I started working my way west and went to all the mainland parks and then got done. And I was planning on making something, had no idea what I was capable of. And it's kind of, I guess, the engineer in me, I kept on saying, like, why can't I do that? So I kept on doing more and more and more and learning a few more of the Adobe products. And I put together a pretty, pretty thorough, thorough book on all the U.S. national parks. And I had to figure out a self-publish and get it out to customers. Hold on. Just hold on. I've interviewed, I've interviewed lots of authors. None of them have taken me back to a mugging. <laughs> well, that's where all good self-published authors should start, I think, is uh, being mugged in, in, des- in desperate times in, in, in Colombia or some other sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's a, it's a very, I don't know, I guess an environment that puts you in a false sense of security is where I was at. But I mean, actually, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, even though I have no animosity towards the, the kids that did it. It's definitely something you'd rather not, not deal with unless you need a little bit of discomfort in your life, I guess. So your first stop is Acadia. Where is Acadia? Yeah, Acadia National Park is on the uh, Atlantic coast. It's in Maine. And I like saying it's the park where the trails go up instead of uh, across. So they're, they're more vertical than horizontal. And that's thanks to the CCC, the Civil Conservation Corps. And 
they put these steel rungs and ladders into the granite granite rocks and you can literally climb up I, I guess you call them mountains. The, the highest peak over there is maybe 1,400 feet. They're, they're quite prominent going from sea level. And yeah, so you can, you can climb, a, climb a mountain without being a rock climber. And it looks like it's all rocks. Are these locations where you're climbing, are those actually on rock surfaces or are you on dirt surface where this um, ladder has been affixed? Yeah, they're all rock surfaces. So they're all um, fixed into the rocks and but yeah, it's all it's all rock surface. They're sort of bald bald moanings due to the the sheerness in their nature. So you don't have much foliage or, or tree cover. But in a few spots, you'll you'll find some. But that gives a pretty interesting perspective when you're looking down. Like you can see beach from some places, or some of the inland lakes, or the the ocean as well from these uh, steep steep trails. Sounds beautiful and quite remarkable and unique. And and they do falcon watches from uh, some of these sites. One of the trails actually closes down for falcon nesting. Yeah, it's a it's a very very unique experience, and and really the only national park of all sixty two where you can do something quite like that, where it's pretty much a rock climbing experience without rock climbing ability. Have you been there in more than just one season of the year? I have been there in spring and fall, and a total of four trips so far. Summer, summer is peak season, and I know I probably should get to these places during the peak, but some of them I just can't take myself to do. And that one being so close to large urban areas like Boston and New York, I kind of uh, shudder a little bit to think about going there. And it's, it's quite popular in, in fall once uh, the leaves start changing color. And that's when I was there last time. And it's, <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's somebody who uh, promotes the parks through through a, a written work she <laughs> shouldn't complain about visitation but i i like i'm a pretty reclusive person and and like having a little space and being able to pull up the trailheads and not have to wait around for a camping spot and and parking space for a, t- taking a hike and that's what you definitely encounter in summer i'm amazed that we've got that coastal national park are there other coastal parks as far as the national parks there is i guess you would consider channel islands in california coastal park it's, it's islands but that that maximizes your your coastland, I guess. There there are a lot of different like there are national lake shores and nas- national seashores in the other national park service units. There there definitely are quite a few on on the ocean, like Redwoods National Park, also in California. That would be on on the Pacific, and then there's Biscayne and Everglades and Dry Tortugas in Florida, that all have quite a bit of ocean saltwater features. And uh, Isle Royal, closest to us, that's uh, a large island in Lake Superior, closer to Canada than it is to um, the mainland of the UP. That's a, a, a pretty fun place, too, where it's a, we got a lot of great backcountry and some interesting wildlife with moose and wolves and some more interesting tours that you can do. You can take some boat tours and they have water taxis and it's kind of a different, different world than you used to in he- here in Wisconsin. I'm wondering when we move into the Midwest, if there's a couple, two or three parks that you have a remarkable story about, or if you could recommend to to listeners. I'm even trying to think of any national parks in the Midwest, Ohio, Illinois. There isn't many. Once, I guess mainly the the Great Plains area is is barren of national parks. You've got Indiana Dunes in Indiana now is a, a new one. And then Gateway Arch in St. Louis was just added recently. Ohio has Cuyahoga Valley. But it's kind of it's a bit of a Passover park. 
it's it's neat when you consider like its surroundings. It's right between Akron and Cleveland, where you never think of there being a national park, but there is. And if you live there, you'd be very thankful to have it. But when you compare it to like Acadia or some of those western parks, it's just kind of like, hmm. You mentioned Gateway. I've heard of that park. Clueless. I have no idea where it is. But it's the the arch in St. Louis that symbolizes our exploration of heading west, Lewis Clark and and Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. So that is also another oddity in the National Park collection in that it's basically built around a man-made monument and a museum. Another, it's a neat feat of engineering. They've got a big land bridge over an interstate that connects St. Louis to the monument. So if you want to go to a a St. Louis Cardinals game and then walk over to the the monument, you can do that without a problem. And then the arch is always neat. They've got uh, another interesting engineering feat is they're trams, they're sort of egg-shaped trams that go up each leg of the the arch, and it has a combination of uh, elevator, escalator, and carousel that uh, goes goes up each leg. And uh, it's, it's weird, it's kind of uh, like an old sort of sci-fi movie, like something maybe you'd see in Star Trek, that, that you hop, hop into this little egg and, and you're looking out a a sort of porthole as you ratchet up the leg of, of the arch up to the viewing viewing area so you can look down on, on St. Louis from there. It's, it's it's pretty neat and that's a it's kind of a fun photographer's park where the arch is, is different and reflects light differently from wherever the sun is and wherever you are. So it's it's fun to spend a few hours and, and wander around the arch. So that park, as you said, is quite unique. It's a park based on a man made location building you know whatever are there and it's also a historical site are there other parks that are essentially built or based on a historical event yeah there are a couple that are more cultural i think if we go back to when i mentioned dry tortugas yeah so that's just south of flamingo that you mentioned in in uh, southern florida and then you, you just go down the other end of the the florida keys and it's not connected by roadways, so you have to take a ferry or a seaplane to reach it. But our government was trying to find a good place to protect the trade route coming out of out of New Orleans. And they decided that this island, after one, I don't know if it was a general or a commodore or some, some sort of title that I don't understand how they, how they rank among each other, but said that this island was trash you couldn't use it it would probably sink under the weight of the a fort the size they're talking about building and then a couple years later they're still trying to find their um place for a fort and then a different guy goes down there like this is the perfect place so they build this massive massive uh red brick fort that was never even completed and it has i don't know how many heavy guns and, and cannons built around it yeah it was intended to protect the trade route and the guns were never fired the Building was never finished, and then during the Civil War, they ended up using it as prison for mainly for North deserters, and uh, it ended up like I guess its, it's claim to fame is is housing Doctor Mudd, the guy who supposedly set John Wilkes Booth's leg after assassinating President Lincoln. So he was down there, and being in a tropical environment, you can kind of imagine that there'd be all sorts of a, a tropical and remote not attached to, to mainland environment. You, there are some uh, medical situations he could get into, and he ended up being the doctor for the the prisoners, and the prisoners, I think it's kind of like uh, we're writing the current presidents of the time, trying to get him pardoned. I don't remember if he got pardoned or not, but yeah, that one has an interesting history in that 
served a bunch of different purposes. And then when they were trying to figure out what to do with it, when it didn't serve that purpose anymore, they ended up giving it to the Department of the Interior. And I, I think this might have been one of the ones that Theodore Roosevelt actually redesignated into a national monument and then eventually it became a national park. But uh, among man-made and, and culture, there, there definitely are a few others like Hot Springs in Arkansas, which is in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's built around a bunch of man-made bathhouses because they're recapturing the, the hot water seeping up through the ground. That uh, Interesting about that is the water takes, I think it's 4,000 years to reach the surface. The, the water like fell on the earth when the pyramids were being built, and then it's like the water that you'd be drinking now fell on the earth as rain when the pyramids were being built. So that's kind of fun to think about that. that so it's filtered on the way down and it takes like a couple days or a couple weeks or something to reach back up to the surface once it reaches a certain temperature. And interestingly, like everyone acknowledges Yellowstone is the first national park, but this hot springs was actually designated a national reservation by Thomas Jefferson in maybe 1830, I think. So it's actually the first official national, whatever you want to call it, national, national unit that was set aside for its natural resources. And that was because of the water had healing properties. So they're trying to, I guess you could say monopolize it and profit off of it. And then in addition to that, there's a, uh, Mesa Verde in Colorado, southwestern Colorado. So that's centered around cliff dwellings by ancient Puebloans. They're really they're really interesting. You're driving above the ground, and if you didn't know they were there, you would never actually know them. So they have like 300 room these cliff dwellings that they have kivas, which are prayer spaces or sacred sacred spaces to them to uh, pray to their gods and do whatever religious ceremonies they're doing, and then nurseries and bedrooms and everything you could need for a, a living and they're quite they're quite expansive and extremely impressive and it's uh that also it's fun to imagine what made them want to build these places and how they got up and down into them because it's no it's no simple simple feat when you even have the uh w- whatever one the the improvements that the national park service has made to to reach them and then these guys are doing it you know, a thousand, thousand years ago, or a little more than that. Are these cliff dwellings open to the public? Yeah, they definitely are. They aren't open, most of them aren't open 24-7 where you can just go and take a look at them because that's a little risky with vandalism fairly common in the national parks. But you can, the main ones, you can go on tours, regularly scheduled tours. And there is one spruce tree house that you can go in whenever, whenever the park is open and walk around and, and take a look that gives you a little taste of it but but yeah there are several other ones that you can go on national park um, ranger led tours which i would highly recommend like any anytime you can go on anything with a, a park ranger it enhances the experience like ten tenfold there's so much fun and and you can tell like they genu- genuinely love the places that they're working at and they like sharing that sort of enthusiasm and passion with um with people that come to check out their park is that anywhere near Moab, Utah, the Arches, and that area? Yep, it definitely is. Just a, a little to the east of Moab. So that's a, it's a pretty good national park circuit you can do. Going to Canyonlands, Arches, and um, Mesa Verde. Why the change in scenery from Acadia to the Arches? Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's one of the, definitely one of the neatest things about the United States when I was first 
circuit I was going around to the parks is to just start to grasp how big our country is, how diverse it is sociologically as well as environmentally, ecologically, and geologically. Yeah, it's massive. And and in some places, you can literally go from desert to tropical forest in the matter of feet. And at some of these parks, you can, like, at Death Valley, you can be looking down at the lowest point in North America, which is Badwater, at, I believe, 280-some-odd feet below sea level. And from there, you can look across the, the valley to Mount Whitney, the highest point in the lower 48, at 14,600-some feet, something something like that. So, and and you're also looking at the hottest and, and driest place, and not, not just uh, the United States, but, but the planet, which was recently like 100, 130 degrees out in Death Valley, which I, I can't imagine that. That's another point. If you wanted to, if you wanted to ask if I was going to, there in all four seasons, Death Valley, I'm definitely sticking, staying away from in summer. I don't want to melt. <laughs> so you've now taken us as far west as Arches. Where do we go from there? Is there um, a collection of parks straight north, or do we just continue straight west? Oh, man, you could you could spend a lifetime in Utah. Utah is a great state. Like, uh, what are there? I think eight national parks. There's Arches, Canyonlands, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Zion. And then a whole bunch of other fun places too in Utah, but uh, that whole that whole area, the Colorado, Utah, Nevada, California, it's very uh, and Oregon and and Washington is very park dense, lots of lots of big nature, and that's largely thanks to the couple of mountain ranges going through there and uh, the Colorado Plateau flowing off from from the Rockies where the Colorado River begins. So it basically follows that Sierra Nevada is going up, up California towards Washington and the Rockies, crossing our country, and then the, the Colorado Plateau going down from the Rockies is littered with national parks. You mentioned the temperature in California recently, and of course very recently this week, the temperature I think in L.A. reached about 115 degrees. And there are lots of wildfires through the state right now. Are there some national parks that you know of that are threatened by the rage of the fires that are current? Yeah, definitely. Rocky Mountain National Park, I believe, has a, a 100,000 acre fire burning right now. And Yosemite is on fire fairly severely. I'm not sure what the size is, but I think I was just seeing that they had 900, 900 some firefighters working on containing that one and they were only 4% contained. Yeah, those are hard things to figure out. The when I was working on the second edition going to the parks, almost every park that I visited out west was on fire like uh I'm like what's going on? and I actually I saw a fire start out at North Cascades National Park which is in very northern Washington. I was just getting some some rations and I going back to my car I saw a lightning strike. And then a fire start, and there happened to be firefighters next to me because they were fighting a, a fire up at Stahican, which is actually in inside the park, a, a ferry right away. I'm like, hey, guys, there's a fire over there. And they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry. We, we don't need to know about that. And then I hopped on the ferry. I went to Stahican. And in between, you could see a fire raging to the – it's a really long, narrow lake that you go down extremely deep. And there were actually firefighters on, on board the boat getting ready to – do a, a shift change because they're in a remote area and been working long days, long hours, I'm sure. And they're getting, getting a little um, relief. 
And when I came back, then the, the fire that I noticed had, had just started while we were there it was, it almost burned everything. And they were talking about evacuating the town. And that's, I was sitting there looking at this, I'm like, there's hoses right there. But I don't know. Is again, that's way out of my control. But, but, uh, yeah, the fires are a, a very real problem. And a lot of the parks, pro- probably all the parks actually, make a concerted effort into minimizing the damage that they can do by doing prescribed burns. I think it's fairly unique circumstances climate wise that we're countering here and everybody's trying to figure out what, what it'll be like, where the fires will be, how severe they'll be, what rainfall you'll get or what kind of heat you'll get for that matter. But, but yeah, all the parks that are in forest that is one of the, like, nature always kind of finds a way, though. Like, some of the coolest things out there in California are the, the huge trees, the redwoods and the sequoia. And both those trees are, like, impervious to fire. The, the only thing that can stop them is their own size where they topple over. So there are trees that'll, that'll make it through it. And by doing those prescribed burns, it gives a whole lot more trees a fighting chance when fires come ripping through. It occurs to me that there are probably many opportunities maybe in every park, for the visitors to go to an education center and learn a lot about the history of the park, the flora and fauna. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of what they're doing is um, educating. And every park has at least one visitor center. And like maybe if, if you're not a read it yourself or check out the intuitive displays, those park rangers are at your disposal too to answer all your questions. But yeah, they, they put a lot of time and effort into these things and resources, and most of them will have a 30 to, to 50 minute video, or maybe even shorter than that, 15 to 50 minute video that you can watch on the history of the parks or some aspect of it. Yeah, they're putting a, a lot more resources into pretty cool interactive displays and, and more modern things while sticking to the, uh, keeping the architecture of the buildings as rustic and as to, to match the, the scenery that they're representing. For years, I've heard all of these bear stories coming down of, I think it's Glacier National Park. Can you tell us a little bit about Glacier? Yeah, uh, just just recently I saw a video of uh, some guy hiking up to, to Hidden Lake, and a big grizzly came walking down the trail and was going towards a couple other hikers, and he's yelling at them saying, there's a bear coming, there's a bear coming, and then they're like, what do we do? And they, they took off running. The one thing you're not supposed to do. And uh, the hikers choose to, to run away from it. The bears think it's prey. But uh, my, my first time in Glacier, actually, I was, I was driving through, just minding my own business in a park, just going real slow, looking at things. Glacier's just, like, absolutely breathtaking. Every every turn you take, the moanings are real sharp and prominent. It's definitely, if all your listeners, if anyone gets a chance, that's uh, one to put way up at the top of your list to, to take a look at. But I'm driving around, and this park ranger's, stops and and they're like hey can you get out of your car and yell at this bear for me (laughs) like absolutely i'll yell at that bear and i and i as 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 you notice right now i don't have the family voice and i'm not i'm not like an aggressive person at all so i'm just like hey bear get out of here go and then after doing that for a while she's just like yeah you're not helping (laughs) i'm like all right uh i tried tried my best that's as uh, as mean as i can be to an animal because they're, you know, we're in we're in their homes, not not the other <laughs> way around. But I, I get that too. Or you don't want bears being in in places where humans are regularly, and if they get into some food and they associate that with a with a nice easy dinner. So that's a remarkable yeah, park. Yeah, stunning backcountry, 
there's lots of lots of fun things. This this was actually a friend of mine was thinking about going there this summer, and with coronavirus happening, in my opinion, a big part of the the park is the boat tours, especially he has a couple of young kids and he and his wife wanted to go over there and, and the boat tours really add a lot to the experience and those weren't running. So I'm like, I would really hold off. And especially considering that it's a very heavily visited park in the summer, it has a short tourism season. You don't really need a whole lot of people congregated in, in one area, but, but yeah, it, it is really, really beautiful. And uh, I was starting out that last statement about how it's, on the Canada United States border and it's actually an international peace park. So they, they run it, I guess it's not really run conjointly with uh, Waterton lakes national park in Canada, but they do a couple of programs where they, they do an international peace park hike where you'll go to the Canada United States border and you kind of shake, shake hands across the border. And uh, that adds a lot to it too, because it's basically two parks in one. You can go up to, you'd need a passport, but uh, you can go up to Waterton Lakes. And from there, you can access Goat Haunt, which is a part of Glacier National Park, which in the middle of the backcountry, which is some prime, some prime Glacier National Park scenery. But you, that's, that's all over the place. There's several entrances to Glacier, and there's a gravel road running up the, the west side of the park along the foot of the mountains that goes to some more remote, beautiful alpine lakes. And um, this is one where Stephen Mather, the first director of the National Park Service, he really fought for getting going to the Sun Road built through the most beautiful part of the park. So the, the road that bisects the park, I mean, I'm sure they're using an awful lot of dynamite and it uh, crosses the Continental Divide. And it runs along these sheer cliffs and to some really beautiful lookouts up to Logan Pass, which is where it crosses, across the divide. Logan Pass is, uh, I mentioned that guy telling hikers to, that the bear is coming down at Hidden Lake. And Logan Pass is where you get to Hidden Lake and to Highline Trail, which leads to uh, Granite Park Chalet, which is back in the backcountry. And there are two, Sperry Chalet and Granite Park Chalet, which are in the backcountry. And you can get a hot meal and have a bed to sleep in. And they're remnants of the days when the railroad companies actually, uh, they were huge, I guess, advocates and sort of uh, made made the parks happen, really, that where they established a lot of the trails and there were horse operations back then. But uh, they built these chalets and then to increase their train traffic and people would come out, take a horse out of the chalet, come back and they'd see some beautiful countryside and have an enjoyable vacation. You mentioned the park that shares the Canadian border. Have you made it up to any of the national parks in Alaska? Yes, I have. I actually, uh, I took my parents to Katmai, Kenai Fjords, and Denali National Park a couple years ago to sort of pay them back for um, setting me up with a with a pretty good life, having a fairly worry-free childhood. So I'd work on paying them back some of that by looking around Alaska, but I do have a few more to go to that are, are flying only fairly, fairly expensive. And I want to, want to do them right when I do them. And then as we were mentioning, while I was, while I was uh, putting myself down, I'm not the, the like survivor type. Like if you stuck me in gates of the Arctic national park, which is north of the Arctic circle, I don't, I don't think I'd last, last real long. I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly decent backpacker, but, uh, <laughs> some of those situations, like, I don't think I know what to do. I probably freeze to death. 
You mentioned the weather as you were talking about Glacier National Park. Are there any parks or large parts of parks that close down seasonally for winter or any predictable weather? I, I think it might be the only national park that closes for winter is Isle Royal up in, in Lake Superior, just north of us. So you, you would think it'd be that Gates of the Arctic that's north of the Arctic Circle, but instead it's uh, Isle Royal has a, a short visiting season two, or I think it's from March until September. So it'll be closing, closing here soon. And that's because uh, lake conditions get rough and it, it does get old pretty quickly and it's difficult to uh, operate their two harbors and, and have transportation service to it. How do you get to that park? So that one, you've got a couple of options. They run ferries out of Grand Portage, Minnesota, and then ferries out of Houghton and Copper Harbor, Michigan, so both in the UP. I think it's uh, maybe a three-hour ferry ride from Houghton, which is, that one's pretty cool because you National um, Park Rangers come with you. It's actually a, a National Park Service ship, and they can put boats on it, kayaks, canoes on it, and uh, park ranger, you can talk to the park rangers then. You can get your backcountry passes on board from Copper Harbor. It's shorter. The, the boat's a little smaller, but you get there quicker. So you can get there earlier in the day. Yeah, and then from Grand Portage, Minnesota, also a, sh- a shorter ride. And then you've got uh, seaplanes flying out of um, Houghton. And that uh, that's one of the more interesting things, too, about coronavirus is uh, they shut down the ferries and the seaplanes kept operating. So you could actually basically have Isle Royalty yourself this uh, this summer if you took a took a seaplane up there. But now, now I saw they're doing some, um, they've got the, the Ranger, the ferry out of Copper Harbor running. Hey, you mentioned the caves, many parks that have caves. And that feature, that kind of national park intrigues me. Can you tell us a little bit more about locations? Yes. In our national parks, if you want the the longest cave, we've got it. It's Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And I think it's 360-some some miles of total passageways. And this isn't like the the big ornate, lots of stalagmites and stalactites cave. It's big rooms and relatively smooth surfaces. And I'm sure it's in my book of why that is. I think it's because there aren't that many openings in the, like it's made by a couple of big sinks rather than any different uh, locations where water's seeping in to dissolve the limestone and carry it away with the the exits from the cave through the exits of the cave but yeah so that's the the longest longest cave is in kentucky and there's a colorful story about some guy who wanted to get in on the caving action and he knew relatively speaking where cave was beneath the surface so he made his own entrance with dynamite and the park has since repossessed that land and and they they do they do use that entrance though for some tours so on some tours you'll hop on a bus and and go to this entrance and start your tour, but most of, most of the tours start in the natural entrance, which is just a, a short walk from the visitor center. But yeah, so, so that one, there's a, there's a variety of tours. You can take a lantern tour where the light's solely su- supplied by, by lanterns, and there's a, a tour that's a, considered a wild caving tour where I was kind of taken aback when I, when I signed up for it, and the park ranger hops out behind her, her counter and takes out a tape measure and puts it around my waist, and she's like you'll just fit and i'm a a fairly skinny like five foot ten and 160 pounds or something like that 
and I, I feel like I'm on the small side and, and I'm like, well, my goodness, what are we, what are we, what's in store for us? And I actually did lose a belt buckle crawling through some, some tight areas in there. So with me, would she just, um, throw her tape away and tell me to go sit on that chair? I, I think, I think you wouldn't be wild cave friendly. There is, <laughs> there is one, uh, one area that's called fat man's misery. And it's a, it's a bit of an exaggeration because it's just, uh, your lower half is sort of in misery, so you can most, most people can make it through. But there and there's a there's actually a walk around for one tight spot where you can get through a different area. But they have some funny uh, names for different different passages that you go through. At this point, I just want to say, quit picking on me. <laughs> well, I you brought it up yourself, Patrick. I didn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't picking. I wasn't going to say anything. I was just I was just saying that there's limitations to some of these things and it's not not uh, not for everybody. How about bats and spiders and the creepy crawly things in the bat in the uh, caverns? Anything about that? Yeah, there's uh so they definitely have uh, bats in that one in Mammoth Cave and right now there's actually uh, speaking of sort of natural disasters there's a white nose syndrome that's going on and and decimating a lot of the bat populations. But more famous for the bat display is Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And uh, I think it used to be millions of bats that would exit and then re-enter the natural entrance to Carlsbad Caverns each each day. But now it's down to a couple hundred thousand, which is still quite quite the display when they're going out to to gobble up some insects. But yeah, that one's that one's quite famous for bat bat display, and they have a a ranger tour along that they have an amphitheater right at the entrance and then a park ranger will start giving the talk on the bats and then if they time it just right which they usually do um as they finish the bats start exiting the cave and it, i mean you can the, the sun is the sun is getting close to setting but the bats kind of blot out the sky as well as they're as they're going off to off for dinner yeah and, and creepy crawlies there are and the crickets, and I remember there's a mud puppy or something in there. So there's some some water features in the cave. That was in, in Carlsbad. So a little a little kind of minnow minnow thing. And uh, most of them you'll find that they're they're pure white. Carlsbad Caverns has another thing where I don't know the exact numbers, but there's there's hundreds of caves actually at Carlsbad Caverns where most people just know about the one that is in the name, the eponymous um, cave. But there are are hundreds of them, and some of them you can actually, if you have some caving experience, you can get permits to go go explore them. But the one that's kind of the, I guess, at the front of most cavers' minds is Lechuguilla, which they won't let the public in. But if anyone's seen Planet Earth, BBC's Planet Earth, in their cave segment, they go through Lechuguilla, and you see all these wild gypsum formations and. Also, I don't, I don't, I don't know what most of it is, but I think, I think bacteria, the really colorful pools, and I think if I'm correct, it's the that's actually the deepest cave in the world. So it goes, it's not real long, although it is, I think it's over 100 miles long, but uh, compared to mammoth, it's not not extremely long. But it goes sharply downward, so it gets real hot, and uh, you've got all these relatively pristine cave rooms because it's just found. Not that long ago, and they actually, uh, I was there just this past winter in February, and they were talking about how they added an airlock to it just to further protect the environment. 
and one one ranger was talking he's actually quite mad because some of the the explorers like you can only get in there if you're a like have scientific interest in something and they were wrecking some routes and going some places where they they weren't supposed to be going and he's pretty bitter about it so that park is about a hundred miles i think you said mammoth was over 300 miles correct yeah and then some of them are really small i mentioned uh great basin in nevada they have a cave and i yeah i guess i'm guessing but i think it's less than a mile of cave that one too but it's it's really neat because there's tons of cave features in that one and they they have stories of the guy who discovered that one and he's just breaking through all these stalagmites and stalactites and and columns that formed because it's so dense in cave features and some of them there's they're taken in new york to sell and others he just wants to get through to see what else is in there and he's taking the fast way rather than trying to find some another way into other rooms of the cave the COVID pandemic, how has that influenced your plans? Yeah, so uh, most of the, well, I guess all the parks are, are open now. Sort of a personal choice about going. And I actually, I actually was out. I was, in, uh, I was in Pinnacles National Park when, I guess you could say, cor- corona, corona landed in uh, the United States. So, and, I, and I actually saw it firsthand. So uh, Pinnacles National Park is, uh, this was created under the Obama administration or established under the Obama administration. And it's just south of San Francisco. And while, while I was there, so San Francisco was one of the hotspots along with Seattle. And while I was up there on these trails, these trails have uh, somewhat similar to Acadia where they're pretty vertical and they have some rungs and some, some chains that you hold on to. I'm I'm seeing people like coughing at gas stations and people coughing up in the, the high peaks area at this park and i'm like what are you doing like i don't i'm like i don't think they shut down wuhan for nothing and uh so i i did what i needed to do there and then i headed to death valley kind of ironic if i was taking height running from a pandemic to a place called death valley that wouldn't be that wouldn't be your top choice but if you knew death valley you know it's a very good spot because it's easy to stay away from people and yeah, we haven't yet mention much about your book so what are the contents the book starts out with a a fairly lengthy introduction section where i just give some basics a couple tips provide some suggested trips some suggested multi-park trips and provide some list best hiking trails best parks in summer best parks in winter stuff like that some like superlatives and some oddities and then a brief section on sort of how to use the the book on breaking down individual sections and sort of the what I was thinking and putting together each park section. So then after that, it breaks into all the parks and goes east to west, starting with Acadia. And uh, what is it, like seven seven different areas I think it's broken into? East, south, north, southwest, west, remote islands in Alaska. And so yeah, then it just goes park to park, um, very recipe-based. Starts with an introduction and some basics, and the introduction is all um, like history, that sort of thing, or any sort of fun little story that I that I found interesting. And then it goes into like a hundred percent activity stuff, like a full spread map, and uh, with flags and trailhead markers. And then you'll have tables of like camping campgrounds and lodges and and hiking trails. So it's it's largely hiking centric as that's mainly the, the primary activity in most of the parks, but it'll cover just about everything you can do in each national park. 
So it's a, a fairly well-rounded, comprehensive book for the, the average visitor. If you really want to get into the backcountry and explore, then you probably want something a little better, even though trails are really well marked. And if you just had an idea of where you wanted to go, you could, in combination of my book and the National Park Service websites, which are which are excellent as well, you could figure out what to do. But like park-specific books out there, that would be a probably a better better resource for you. Was impressed with the quality of the photographs. So congratulations on being a great photographer. That, it didn't start out that way. I, I I like saying that I have the world's largest collection of mediocre national park photos, which is which might be true. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. I'm, I'm thinking I'm well over a hundred thousand right now. Kind of law, law of large numbers. You take enough, you get some good ones, and you spend enough time in the parks, which I, which I definitely do, and you, you end up with some interesting skies and sunset. And I rarely miss a sunrise or sunset when I'm out there. I'm pretty much full on from sunrise to sunset, not wanting to waste a, a second. Your book is marvelous. I, I've enjoyed looking at it so much. I've been to, I think, 20 of the national parks didn't have your book or any of those visits. However, I know each one of my visits to the park would have been greatly enhanced if I'd had your book with me. Yeah, I'd like to think that way. So it's, it's nice nice hearing that always because that was, that was basically the goal. When I was when I was sitting in Acadia and I was using National Geographic's National Parks book, which is, which is, it's a fine book and like mine, excellent photography, but it's really for the roadbound, um, roadbound tourists. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, I'd really like something more. And at the same time, I had a individual parks book by a guy named James Kaiser for Acadia. And I just sat there staring at both. I'm like, man, if you did this to this and did the sort of single park book, but made it more accessible in a multi-park book, like, like I did, I'm like, I think you'd really have something. But as I mentioned, still, still a long way to success because running a business is, well, I, I knew it was kind of going to be kind of hard, but it's uh, a lot more difficult than I than I imagined. Your story is most interesting. The book is wonderful, and I thank you, Mike. Well, thank you very much, and uh, happy to do it. It was, it was a fun, fun time sitting down and talking to you.